Welcome to the Tone Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. Kyle Harper, Professor of Classics at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Harper, welcome to the program. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Uh, Dr. Harper has written four very interesting books, but I want to focus on just one of them today, and that's The Fate of Rome, which explores how a changing climate and disease may have contributed to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So to launch right into it, um, you observe in the book's introduction that human civilization is an environmental drama, and you suggest that the Roman climatic optimum, this period of very benign weather that graced the Mediterranean between about 200 BC and 150 AD, more or less, um, contributed to the growth and stability of the Roman Empire. How substantial is the evidence for warmer and wetter weather in this period? And given the fickle nature of the Mediterranean climate, how much of a difference would somewhat warmer and wetter weather really have made for the Romans? Well, great questions, big questions, and questions mm. that we're still uh, trying trying to answer. We really live at an exciting moment as a historian, an exciting moment when we are receiving and have the opportunity to be a part of the creation of new kinds of knowledge about the human past that were unimaginable a generation ago. And paleoclimate data is a, a major aspect of that. And the, the Holocene climate, that is the climate that has existed for the last uh, almost 12,000 years, is a, a very, in general, very favorable climate uh, regime for human civilization. And among the things that make it favorable is the fact that it's relatively stable. So relative to say the, the longer term history of the earth, even the, the recent Pleistocene, the last couple of million years, uh, which is extremely rocky. It's a, it's a climate epoch made up of alternating ice ages and interglacials. The Holocene is an interglacial, so between ice ages. And it's extremely stable in the very big picture if you zoom out. And yet, and yet, uh, it's not perfectly stable. There's still a lot going on in the in the Holocene, and there's a, a lot of change and variability that's uh, of a magnitude that's clearly very relevant for human societies. And it, I'll start by observing that what you called the the Roman climate optimum is also sometimes in the paleoclimate literature called the Roman warm period. Both of these are, are used. Mm -hmm. Those are actually terms that, that people who do earth science, uh, do paleoclimatology develop. Those are not labels that Roman historians came up with. Uh, and in fact, I think a lot of Roman historians, myself included, use these terms, but, but also want to be kind of cautious and careful about them because um, the the truth is is complicated. It depends, of course, where you are. The the climate mm -hmm. system, um, you know, can't be easily described by a, a single label like the Roman climate optimum, which implies that things were just cheery uh, <laughs> everywhere. It depends a lot on where you are. But it seems that we can say some things with a with a relative degree of confidence that. Um, this period, generally of the last few centuries BCE and the first century or two of the Common Era, uh, are relatively warm and stable. I think it's very hard to make generalizations about mm -hmm. the, the general 
patterns of precipitation, which are very, very um, local and regional. But the, the temperature patterns seem to be relatively stable. The sun um, was, was uh, very strong. The, one of the sources of variability is that the sun itself um, isn't completely constant in the amount of radiation that it's emitting. Um, and so that seems to have been one factor. Another factor seems to have been that the, the Roman climate optimum, this period that, um, that we're talking about, which I will also qualify by saying people use it very inconsistently. If you ask mm. 10 climatologists when it starts and ends, you'll get 11 answers. <laughs> and it, it seems that the a second sort of condition is that there is a relative lack of major volcanic events. Why does that matter? Because volcanoes are one of the most important mechanisms of short-term climate forcing in the Holocene and beyond. But for, for civilizations that are trying to live off of agriculture, really powerful volcanic eruptions emit a huge amount of sulfur into the stratosphere that um, that becomes tiny little um, sulfate particles that reflect solar radiation away from the surface of the earth. So they lead to generally um, very short-term cooling. It matters where the volcano is, when exactly it erupts and, and other factors, but the the this major short-term mechanism that really shakes things up um, in recent climate history seems to have been pretty quiet um, over the period that we know historically as the late Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire. There's a major exception right around the time that Julius Caesar is assassinated. There's a huge mm. uh, eruption that does seem to, to shake things up a little bit. But other than that, there's several hundred years that are notable for their quiescence. So it seems that that in general, the, the Romans um, imperial expansion and the maximal flourishing of their empire take place in these very broad conditions. And we're starting, I think, increasingly to be able to tease out what does that mean under that huge single term, that big blanket term, what does it mean for different regions? Because it probably does mean something different in Gaul and Italy in Spain and Greece and so on. Oh, that's very interesting. And to ask a more general question, um, what kind of proxies do we use to trace how, how warm or wet the climate is 2,000 years ago? Yeah, we don't have what are called instrumental data. So mm -hmm. when you uh, look up the weather on your, your phone, um, that's a prediction that's made uh, on a, or if it's just looking at the current weather, it's it's a observation made uh, with a huge amount of observational data by instruments, things like thermometers. We don't have that going back um, much more than a century or two. So how do you know what the climate was doing in a period like the Roman Empire? You have to piece it together from different kinds of clues that are preserved in natural archives. And so uh, there's no one single archive that is that is best or most important. Really, it's a picture that's woven together. It's kind of a tapestry that, that has a lot of different threads that are put together to try and uh, come up with a, a confident picture. The most important are probably tree rings, dendrochronology, mm -hmm. the study of uh, of how trees, uh, particularly trees that are in climate sensitive areas, so say high altitude trees that are going to be sort of on the environmental edge where they're responsive to short term changes in either 
temperature hydrology. So uh, if it has a warm year, it's going to have more growth um, pretty crudely. But if it has a very cold year, shorter growing season, um, it's going to have less growth. So tree rings are probably the, frankly, the, the most robust um, paleoclimate proxy for the kinds of scales and questions that we're interested in as historians. The problem is, if you're a Roman historian, that tree ring series in Italy don't go back this far. So this has been kind of a, a problem or a blind spot that the, the very best um, tree ring reconstructions that go back about 2,500 years tend to come from other places. So from really central Europe, from Alpine tree rings, where there are amazing uh, climate reconstruction series, but that doesn't necessarily give you as rich or as uh, reliable insight into what's going on in Italy. So you have to you have to coordinate that, or you have to kind of um, complement that data with other kinds of insights. So people use ice cores, which again are not local, but can tell you about things like um, volcanic eruptions. We use um, marine sediments, so lake sediments or ocean floor sediments that can sometimes provide um, proxies for environmental conditions. I can tell you there are some amazing marine records and there are some that are uh, about to come out, hopefully, that will will enrich what we know about Roman Italy. Um, what are known as speleothems, which are cave deposits like stalagmites and stalactites that form in um, over time and can sometimes in their chemical composition reflect environmental uh, conditions like precipitation. So there's no uh, one perfect way, but by combining all of these, we can start to reconstruct a, a picture. Uh, but I'll just underscore that kind of one of the, the big challenges for Roman historians is that uh, we need to know a lot more about what's going on really in the heartland of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, thank you. That, that, that's very illuminating for me, too. I'm kind of really aware of these natural archives and how important they are, but the how conditional their use is and how limited the information they can tell us is it's an important qualifier. Yeah, it, it's exactly. It's kind of miraculous. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. And there's a ton mm -hmm. of amazing science uh, that, that goes into this. But at the same time, um, it's hard. It's it's hard <laughs> right. to know exactly what, what was happening thousands of years ago at the kind of resolution that you need mm -hmm. to, to make it relevant for human history. Right. So, you know, on the basis of what we do know, which is patchy and again, conditional on new data coming in, um, it seems that the apogee of the empire coincides with this more or less stable period um, of climate in the Mediterranean area, more or less. Um, and after this, you identify this period that you call the uh, Roman transitional period from roughly 150 to 450 of the common era. Um, and this you say, again, on the basis of what we do know, seems to have a cooler and less settled climate from the very, you know, uh, the, the God's eye view of the empire. Um, so on this basis, if the, if the climate is more cooler, more, more less stable um, for whatever reasons, uh, how in considering the agricultural economy of the empire, which is, you know, the, the basis of all the entire, everything that happens in the empire, um, how would cooler and less stable conditions have made the empire more vulnerable, whether to, to external attack, internal unrest, and any, any other sense? Yeah, it's complicated. And I would say that maybe we'll talk more about this, but um, mm -hmm. the, the book that I wrote that we're talking about came out in 2017, which it means, of course, that it was written in the years before that. And a lot of the the first wave of climate research that 
that I was lucky to be involved in with a lot of people. Um, it was even a few years before that. So mm -hmm. we've really learned a lot. And one thing I would now increasingly believe and argue is that the um, the climate starts to become more unstable a little bit earlier than I think we used to believe, maybe as early as 100 CE mm. or so. Um, not dramatically, not drastically, but the, the kind of conditions that define this, this thing, the Roman climate optimum, seem to start unraveling a little bit earlier than we thought. So maybe the the climate pressure was building um, across much of the, the second century. And I do think that it's very hard to, to generalize um, long-term trends in either mm -hmm. temperature precipitation from about 100 to 550, which is a real challenge um, because there's, there's nothing very simple you can say. Within that period, there are phases of greater and lesser instability. There are warmer and cooler periods. Um, there are wetter and more arid conditions. It certainly increasingly looks like the middle to late third century, which is a period of um, extreme crisis in mm -hmm. the Roman Empire. Really, the Roman Empire falls apart um, for, for a period in the 250s to 270s. Um, and I think it increasingly looks like turbulence in the climate is one of the ingredients that uh, that leads to, that precipitates this really total breakdown of the the roman empire systems so the the links in the the chain of causality probably um, go like this that when you have a um, more stable climate and or a climate that is more favorable to agricultural output it supports more economic productivity and more population. And we, we always have to remember, going back to the past, that we, are, we live in a world after the Green Revolution mm -hmm. of the 1960s and 70s, when extraordinary biological engineering of, of agricultural crops, most importantly for, for this discussion, wheat, lead to really dramatic biological changes in plant productivity. And so the wheat that, that we eat today is 99.9999% a product of this green revolution. This wheat is short uh, and it is very fast maturing. So it is much more resilient to the vagaries of weather. And even still, I mean, we know that it's, you know, the weather matters. Ask a, ask a wheat farmer, um, you know, the, the folks in Western Oklahoma, uh, where, where I am, if, if it doesn't rain, um, they're in trouble. And that's with amazing, resilient wheat that's bred um, to be very, very hardy. So when you go back to even a century ago, the wheat is almost twice as tall. It takes forever. The, the hmm. maturation process is slow. So a lot can go wrong um, if it's too cold, if it hails, if, um, uh, if it doesn't rain. Um, there's, there's much greater space for the, the weather to undermine agricultural productivity. So it, it depends. There's no optimal um, climate in the singular for mm. agricultural production. Um, 
the the relationship between wheat productivity and things like temperature and precipitation is nonlinear and mainly what you don't want is extremes in either direction it does look like extremes of cold um, are very bad for for agriculture in the mediterranean extremes of aridity are very bad um, and probably when the climate is, say, significantly cooler, there's a, a greater chance of harvest failure, uh, of catastrophic harvest failure. Mediterranean societies are used to variability. They can mm -hmm. withstand um, bad year. They can withstand maybe a couple of bad years. Uh, but if you do get really fundamentally long-term decreases in agricultural output, it's one of the the most important factors in the overall productivity of the economy this is an agrarian economy where something like 70 80 percent of people work in agriculture so it's the dominant sector and it's highly responsive to these complex climate climate conditions so the the back to the links in the chain of causality and there's still a lot of need for work on on defining some of these but at a high level if the the harvests are worse and or they fail more often the economy is less productive and their the land can support fewer people if that's the case of course in uh, agrarian empires such as rome's you have to have taxes and you have to have grain output to support the urban population and you have to have grain and taxes to to pay for a massive army so the the political ramifications of agricultural output in the primary sector are really enormous. And if you take a system and you start shaking that around and stressing it, um, it certainly can reverberate through the, the society and through the geopolitics of the Roman Empire and affect everything else as an important factor. Hmm. You know, one thing almost as you were speaking about the vulnerability of pre-modern agriculture, um, of the example of Egypt, where the rise of the Nile, of course, determines everything. And that, of course, has rained far down in Ethiopia. But even so, that one natural factor determines everything that happens in the kingdom. And a sequence of bad years tends to undermine dynasties, and or so the, the various elite tell us. Um, but that, that's an important point, that it's agriculture is a point of vulnerability. And a series of years that are unstable can undermine everything that happens, whether it's inside the empire without. Um, and it's a contributing factor to whatever else is happening. Exactly. So to, to move from that to the topic of disease, which is not unrelated, of course, um, you describe, you explain in the book um, why diseases in the Mediterranean world and across the globe tend to originate in the tropics. Can you explain why that is? And also why, um, or some of the factors rather, that made the Romans especially vulnerable to uh, pathogens from far outside their own uh, controlled space? Yeah, so there's a couple of a couple of important points. One is just that, um, first of all, humans have a huge number of infectious agents of microbes that cause us disease, whether they're bacteria, viruses, protozoa, um, fungi, and um, an important dimension of human history is the the evolution of the pathogens that make us sick in the Roman world most people most of the time die of infectious causes we just know that because that's the case mm -hmm. of all human societies uh, really until uh, just a little more than a century ago and so 
even in ordinary times, most people in the Roman Empire are dying of gastroenteric infections, of, of respiratory infections, even in times when there's not massive pandemics. So this, this array of infectious organisms that cause disease in humans is a product of our history um, and uh, in many cases, a product of our recent history. And we don't know um, the geographic origins of many or even most of our pathogens. Um, many of them could have evolved anywhere. There are a large number of humans, large number of animals. It is the case that there is a strong geographic dimension to infectious diseases in human societies. This still is visible today in a world where we have a huge number of tools to control and combat infectious disease, where we've made unbelievable progress as a species over the last century or so in prolonging human life by controlling diseases. There's still an enormous gradient um, from um, tropical to, to high latitudes in the, the pressure that infectious diseases exert on human societies. And there are parts of it that we don't understand. In general, the question of what's called the latitudinal, latitudinal species gradient um, hmm. is a major topic in ecology. Why is there more uh, diversity of all kinds of life, whether you're talking about plants, whether you're talking about animals, and whether you're talking about um, microbes of interest, there's just more life um, near the equator because there's more solar energy, um, hmm. it's hotter. Um, and so there seems to be more diversity even at the microbial level. Um, it's also the case that a huge number of human diseases that are particularly virulent and particularly important are transmitted by vectors that are insects. So in particular, by things like mosquitoes that can be the, the transmitter of the disease from one victim to the next. And the, the Roman Empire is interesting because it sits, um, you know, it's centered on the subtropics. And so um, it, particularly in the, the Mediterranean, parts of the Roman world are um, subject to some of the worst diseases in human history, like uh, falciparum malaria, the, the mm -hmm. most terrible form of malaria, um, which I think we increasingly, increasingly can confidently say was was a presence in the, the Roman health environment. So um, a lot of the geography of infectious disease has to do with the, the ecology of things like mosquitoes and where they can live, um, but um, also have to do with the kind of ecologies that human societies create. And the Roman world created uh, a system, an environment for microbes that was uh, very favorable to them. And that included urbanization. So putting together huge numbers of human beings in close proximity, and particularly in a world where there's no vaccines, there's no antibiotics, there's um, um, limited uh, sanitation services uh, that, that we're so used to in, in modern wealthy cities. And in the, the Roman period, urbanization would have been a major factor that, um, that helped infectious diseases spread. But then the Roman Empire is also highly connected, both within the empire uh, and beyond the empire. And so within the empire, that meant that diseases could spread more easily between different human populations. And the fact that the Romans are so connected with the world beyond, um, with trading with trading partners in, in East Asia indirectly over the, the Silk Roads, um, in South Asia 
um, both over land, but also, of course, over oceanic connections with East Africa, with Sub-Saharan Africa, with Northern Europe. So the, the Roman Empire, people increasingly use the word globalization. And of course, we have to qualify it. It's not mm -hmm. modern globalization where there's McDonald's everywhere, but there's a kind of incipient globalization. That means the Romans are part of this network that connects them with populations effectively across the entire old world. Right. And they're correspondingly more vulnerable to whatever happens to evolve in the rest of the old world uh, microbially. Exactly. And I say mm -hmm. that this is a very interesting frontier for research as we get more genetic information about mm -hmm. the evolutionary past of our pathogens. And also as there's just more uh, work comparatively. One of the really interesting questions that we still kind of just fundamentally don't know is whether this major disease outbreak in the second half of the second century that we call the Antonine Plague, mm -hmm. whether that simultaneously struck regions outside the Roman world, and particularly in China, where there is written evidence for major epidemics that are very nearly simultaneous. And we just don't know, um, mm. but I'm optimistic that eventually we'll we'll figure some of that out. Now, that's a good segue to, you know, the, the first pandemic in the Roman world, what we call the Antonine Plague. And uh, if you just explain how much we do know about this terrible pathogen, you know, when it arrived, what it probably was, as far as we can tell my, you know, from the microbe that caused it, and, and why its impacts um, are, or at least were, so fiercely disputed by scholars. Well, the Antonine Plague is, uh, first of all, a pandemic. I think we can say that uncontroversially. Pandemic is a kind of loose term. It sounds mm. sciencey, but um, <laughs> but it's a rough and ready term. So there's no mm -hmm. sort of formal criterion for for what makes something a pandemic. A pandemic is just a big epidemic that spreads over multiple regions. But this is something that can actually tell us a lot about what's going on because the the written record for the Roman world is fairly good, and the Antonine Plague absolutely stands out. Um, if you look for hundreds of years before the arrival of the Antonine Plague in the 160s, there's nothing that even comes remotely close to comparing the, the scale and magnitude of this disease outbreak. Um, in a world where there were always epidemics, this one really stood out to, to a range of contemporaries who have nothing in common. They don't know each other. They're writing in different languages. They have different religions and worldviews. And so there's something about this that's different. And it really starts with the fact that it's a, a pandemic. It's called the Antonine Plague, which is a kind of uh, misleading name. Uh, the Antonines are the, the ruling dynasty, in this case, Marcus Aurelius uh, and, and Lucius Verus are the co-emperors when it arrived sometime in the 160s. Um, and it's called the Antonine Plague, but it's important to, to pause and recognize that in English, this language is ambiguous. Plague can just mean generically an epidemic, a disease outbreak, a pestilence, or it can mean very specifically the disease that we call the plague, the bubonic plague caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. We have no reason to believe that the Antonine Plague was caused by Yersinia pestis. I would never rule it out, uh, but it really doesn't seem consistent with any of the, the evidence that we have. The problem is we don't know what caused the Antonine Plague. It'd be much better if we called it the Antonine Pestilence or the Antonine Pandemic, but you know you can't you can't <laughs> change you can't turn the ship around um, in open water like this. So the the Antonine Plague is a name that's stuck, but we just have to recognize that it's not the plague. 
And problematically, we don't really know what caused it. We, the Roman historian community used to say fairly confidently that it was smallpox, which is a viral disease caused by the virus variola major, that in modern times is one of the most destructive causes of epidemic mortality. This is increasingly problematic. Now that we have more and more ancient DNA evidence, including ancient variola genomes, the, the strain of this virus that causes so much havoc in the modern world from say the 1500s on, that lineage isn't old enough to have caused the Antonine Plague. And so we, I think, shouldn't say the Antonine Plague was caused by smallpox. Now, still in the realm of possibility, very much, I think, is that the Antonine Plague was caused by an ancestral form of mm. this virus. But the problem is that, um, that we don't know exactly how that ancestral form would have behaved, what would have been its, its pathology, its virulence. Uh, so that leaves open some of the, the most interesting questions, unfortunately. And really, until we get genetic evidence that is from the skeleton of someone who died of the Antonine Plague, we're able to recover the DNA or other biomolecular identifications uh, of the pathogen that caused the Antonine pandemic, we really won't know with certainty what caused it. And that's unfortunate because when you know the, the microbe that caused uh, an outbreak, it lets you fill in some of the gaps. Um, so hopefully that's a that's a piece of historical knowledge that we'll someday have. But right now we have to be, I think, very cautious and say that it could have been an ancestral form of smallpox, but the, the reality is that we, we, in our present state of knowledge, don't fundamentally know. What we can still investigate is what other indications are there that this was a major disease outbreak. Um, of course, in the ancient world, we don't have reliable government population figures. We don't have mortality um, data. So it involves a lot of inference from little pieces, from clues. And there, there are a lot of little pieces um, that suggest that this was a, a mortality event, that it killed a lot of people in a way that was highly unusual, even in the Roman world. Um, just starting with the fact that all the historical sources just say that um, mm -hmm. in a world where they were used to death. Um, in a way that's hard for us to imagine. Uh, there's a lot of testimony that this was really a, a devastating and terrifying disease outbreak. But then there are other little clues that we can we can try and use to piece together from Egyptian papyri to inscriptions um, to other kinds of proxy evidence. And I think all of it suggests that this was um, a, a pretty big demographic shock that it killed a lot of people. You know, historians debate this. I don't think it's plausible that it that it killed a few percentage uh, of the, mm -hmm. the population. The, the, in the Roman world, probably 3% plus or minus um, of the population died every year um, mm -hmm. in a normal year. Um, so, you know, it has to be some multiple of that. Uh, but I don't, from my point of view, I've never thought the Antonine Plague kills something like a quarter of the population. Um, I don't think we have the evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the probability of it's very low. Um, I think it probably had a huge demographic impact in a lot of cities um, and in other highly connected or densely populated areas, like a lot of Egypt. Mm -hmm. But um, 
this is where it'd be helpful to know what caused it because then we would maybe have a little better understanding of how it moves between populations. So it's it's debated because it's mysterious. It's kind of fuzzy. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there is a lot we don't know. Um, the, the boundaries of what's possible are rather wide. But I think we should reckon with a, a pandemic that um, was out of the ordinary course of the, the disease environment and mortality history, and that did a lot to, to shake the, the Roman system. Well, I have to admit, I was guilty when I was teaching Roman history of saying that it was smallpox, that it killed a quarter of the population just you're blindly. You're in very good company. <laughs> so am I. Uh, we're, oh, yeah. you're, in, you're in good company. Um, but that's important, all these qualifiers, that it may have been some ancestral variola pathogen. We just aren't quite sure yet until we have better genetic evidence, which hopefully is forthcoming. Hopefully we'll get there. So to turn to an even more controversial pandemic, um, the Plague of Cyprian, which you discuss both in your book and in an article published in advance of that, um, could you walk us through what this, or our, rather, our, the evidence for this pandemic, um, and how and uh, widespread impacts may have been on the empire, and what, if anything, we know about the pathogen responsible? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would call the plague of Cyprian more controversial so much as more neglected. Um, <laughs> it it had almost completely fallen out of modern historical consciousness, um, such that major books written about the, the third century and the crisis of the third century would pass over it with minor or even no comment at all. And I think that's a huge mistake um, because it's pretty clear that the, the plague of Cyprian um, was, was something that was considered by the contemporaries who lived through it to have been one of the major factors in what we call the crisis of the third century. So let me step back a little bit and say, um, first of all, it's a, again, I think a, a misleading and terrible name. Cyprian <laughs> is a bishop in Roman North Africa in Carthage whose sermons about the, describe the, the course of the disease are very vivid, very memorable. And so the, the name of the pandemic ultimately got stuck uh, with him, Plague of Cyprian, but the poor guy had nothing to, uh, to do with, with causing it. Uh, he, he does give us some very uh, compelling and interesting descriptions of the course of disease, which again, we have no reason to believe was the plague, bubonic plague. Mm -hmm. I would never say never. Um, just you have to be careful because you never know when we're going to get um, paleogenetic or ancient DNA evidence that may change everything we know. Um, <laughs> that'd be great fun. I'd have to <laughs> rethink some things, <laughs> rewrite some things, but um, that's that's the nature of this business. And that'd be great fun. But we don't have any reason to to think that it was the plague. Unfortunately. Um, I would say we have even less of an idea what caused this than the Antonine Plague, which is saying something. People have speculated that it was a hemorrhagic fever, which I think mm -hmm. I uh, may have started that uh, that meme. Uh, and <laughs> um, I would now backtrack a little bit just because having, in the meantime, written a global history of infectious disease where I look at all of the epidemics that I could study throughout human history across time and space, there are very few major, major pandemics that seem to be caused by, uh, by hemorrhagic fevers and none that I know of in the Mediterranean. So just on sort of prior plausibility, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical, uh, but I would keep it in the, the realm of possibility. The problem is uh, we are certainly, I have no idea 
um, what to what to really posit um, influenza, um, ancestral smallpox again would not mm. surprise me. Measles, which we know was rattling around in some form and can be a very severe disease, particularly in stressed populations like mm -hmm. those of the mid third century. Uh, or something that we we really haven't thought about enough, like um, relapsing fever, which can be um, a major factor, particularly in times of, of famine. Um, what we know about the plague of Cyprian is almost entirely due to historical written evidence. And um, I spent a lot of time, almost a decade ago now, um, trying to tease out all of the, the written evidence for the plague of Cyprian. And it's really actually quite impressive. There are, I forget how many I counted now, seven or so um, eyewitness contemporary accounts. And then another um, 15 to 20 that descend from um, these or other contemporary accounts, which really means that we have a lot of testimony from what is absolutely one of the the most shadowy generations of roman history mm -hmm. i mean the period between 250 and 275 is a period when the wheels come off the roman empire and um, it's hard to know what's going on who's emperor who's fighting who um, but the one thing we know from everybody who lived through it is that there was a really terrible pandemic um, and this includes some of the best historians. I'll mention something very exciting. Um, colleagues who are Roman historians in Vienna who've been working on this amazing use of technology, um, X-ray fluorescence to read the otherwise invisible palimpsest uh, manuscript of the contemporary Athenian historian Dexippus. So they're using mm -hmm. these amazing um, sort of x-ray uh, glasses to read a text that's not there by a contemporary historian. And they've spent years doing this. They're really um, doing amazing work and it's still very hard to read. Um, and the, the Greek is is very difficult because a lot of the, the readings are uncertain. So I have huge admiration for, for what they're doing. And they just published 18 new lines from the, the lost contemporary historian, Dexippus of Athens, who is probably one of the, the most important, maybe the most important contemporary historian. Mm -hmm. And what do these lines describe? They describe this horrible Gothic invasion and they describe um, the the devastation caused by the contemporary pestilence. Really? Um, huh. And Dexippus clearly is the source of the claim that the, the scribes uh, in the city of Rome recorded up to 5,000 people dying per day, um, which implies a, a pretty severe peak epidemic mortality. So it's fascinating. Ultimately, though, this is all we have are these written testimonies. Um, they're vivid. I think they're compelling, uh, but there's still a lot we don't know about the Plague of Cyprian. Where did it come from? Uh, when exactly did it start? Um, what? How important was it? Um, unfortunately, these are these are still open and very difficult questions. And I'll note that one of the reasons why they're difficult is precisely because the wheels come off. Um, mm -hmm. It looks like everything goes wrong. The climate gets extremely cold. So there's a massive swing in climate. Um, it looks like in the core Mediterranean, it's also very arid. So I think we have to imagine um, that these otherwise pretty hazy and vague reports of harvest failure and famine um, are probably real, probably mm -hmm. on the ground. People are just starving. Um, it's also clearly um, a, a crisis where both cause and effect are 
massive military invasion. So confederations of largely Germanic people cross the Danube um, and cause military defeat on a scale that the Roman Empire had really rarely have ever known. Simultaneous with the rise of uh, Sassanid Persia, which is much more um, active and hostile on the Eastern Front. So you have not one, but two really formidable enemies attacking simultaneously, probably at the same time as harvest failure. The coinage system more or less falls apart. Um, the precious metal content of the coins um, plummets to, to virtually zero, um, setting the, the financial system into a tailspin, probably affecting the, the fiscal and taxation system, the entire economy. And ultimately the Roman Empire breaks apart. So um, for, for several years, you have functionally three Roman empires. You have a Roman empire in the East, it's governed out of Palmyra. Mm -hmm. You have what we just think of as the Roman empire. It's kind of the central um, empire. And then there's what we call the, the empire of the Gauls, which is really the, the valuable, wealthy, prosperous, Northwestern quadrant of the empire. And there's really no reason why the Roman empire had to be put back together. It's just contingency that, um, that it happens that way, but this could have easily been the, the end of the Roman empire as a unified Mediterranean polity. Um, the, this period is a, is a moment when it all falls apart and the plague is part of that. It's maybe a cause, it's maybe an effect, it's probably both. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very hard to say that the plague's impact was X, Y, or Z mm -hmm. simply because everything goes wrong. And ultimately that may be the, the best way we can think of it is that there is this systemic, um, failure that you see cascade through the Roman system when the, the defense system, the, the economy, the, financial and monetary system, uh, along with human health, sort of experience this amazing, tremendous, devastating shock at the same time. It's a nice way of putting it, that the plague is both cause and effect of all this chaos, that you know it emerges from this background of failure, both politically and probably on the agrarian level as well, um, but of course contributes to said chaos in all kinds of unpleasant ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I had heard about that, that Dexibus fragment. That's, that's fascinating. They, they found a it's new really, confirmation really from right the greatest witness to the mid-third century. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, turning to a real plague at last, um, the, the plague of Justinian, um, you know, last and greatest of the ancient pandemics. Um, so you note, you note in your book that rats had colonized the Roman world centuries before the outbreak actually occurred. Um, what factors do you think delayed the outbreak of plague until 541, beyond just sheer contingency that happened to occur at that moment? Well, I don't know. Yeah. We don't, we right, don't right. know. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a huge mystery um, mm -hmm. in the, the bigger evolutionary story of plague, of Yersinia pestis, mm -hmm. is why in oh. some moments, in some phases of the human past, does this seem to spill out of um it's wild reservoirs and cause these human catastrophes mm -hmm. and we can easily ask the exact same question of the black death um there's great interest there are uh, there are disciplined um, hypotheses but there's there's not a, a clear certainly not a universal understanding and in some ways the mystery is only deepened as we learn more because we do think that the black rat uh, ratus ratus um, had colonized most of the Mediterranean um, for several centuries. So not a super long time in, mm -hmm. in the big picture, but 
um, several centuries before the outbreak of the Justinianic plague, um, providing the, the ecological platform for the, the pandemic in the sixth century. We now know that the genetic lineage that caused the Justinianic plague had been around for several centuries. So why? Um, it's a it's a very good question. It's one we need to to push at. Um, but, but right now we don't totally totally understand if what we think of as the main ingredients, the pathogen was ready. Um, it had all the the molecular adaptations that it was going to need. Um, if the rats were there, the ecological platform was ready. Clearly, those ingredients were necessary but not sufficient. So, what else was it that that triggered it? We don't know. Um, I will tell you. Part of the answer increasingly looks to be related to the to the climate and the sequential outbreak of a, a series of volcanic eruptions. Very. Um, high magnitude volcanic events, and certainly um, in their in the concatenation of several volcanic out, uh, eruptions in 536, 540, mm -hmm. they cause immediate um, and very drastic climate change. Um, has to have had a role, right? The mm -hmm. the evidence is increasingly clear that the the impact of the sequence of volcanic events in the 530s and 540s causes the most um, intense episode of short-term climate change, the most rapid cooling um, of the millennium. Hmm. And so it, it just can't be pure coincidence that um, you have the, the most extreme climate perturbation of the millennium and the most extreme infectious disease outbreak of the millennium. Um, that's, that's not just uh, random coincidence. There's some causal relationship that we don't, totally understand. And it's probably causal relationships that, mm -hmm. um, you know, we can, we can speculate that the, um, climate shock causes some kind of change in precipitation that may cause some kind of vegetation change that could cause, uh, uh wild animal populations that are host of the, the bacterium to explode. That could cause it to spill out of its wild reservoirs to infect commensal or human mm -hmm. proximate rodents like the black rat. Um, it could be that famine caused human migration. I think it's very likely that repeated food shortage rendered populations susceptible. So under any condition, humans who are starving and are malnourished are immunologically weaker and more susceptible to infection and to severe clinical outcomes. So my guess is that it's some combination of these factors that we'll keep trying to, to tease out. But um, the way the way I would put it is that the the climate perturbation was probably both the spark and the fuel um, mm. that in some sense it helped set it off. And then it helped make it so bad um, mm -hmm. because the human populations around the Mediterranean and beyond were probably weakened, frail, and vulnerable to this terrible health catastrophe uh, because of the, the sequence of failed harvest failures that probably led right into it. So it's a, you know, it's an amazing um, um, series of events that had these, you know, horrifically tragic human consequences that we're still piecing together. What are the most plausible? links between these these kind of perturbations but i think you needed all of it you needed the evolution of the pathogen you needed the ecology of the the black rats living everywhere around human 
populations, along with some kind of trigger that sets it off, along with fuel that, that made it such a destructive uh, outbreak. Hmm. Yeah, well, you said it's, it's a matter of many, many causes interacting in ways that we don't, well, hopefully we'll have a firmer handle on in the future, but are now just, well, we just know, kind of, yeah. Exactly. We know a lot more than we did 10 or 15 years ago, right. and we'll know a lot more in another 10 years. Hmm. So in your opinion, how profoundly did the Plague of Justinian affect the historical trajectory of the Roman Empire? Um, if I were rewriting my book today, um, <laughs> I would emphasize it even more than I did. Really? Um, I think that the, the best critical work on the historical sources, um, which continues to go on, so amazingly, um, there's, we're still sort of in the, the first wave of looking really closely at some of the, the most important written sources um, for the outbreak. Um, and all of the really critical scholarship has tended to underscore how truly devastating and consequential this outbreak seemed to, to contemporaries. Secondly, beyond the, the kind of close examination of the, the written record, is the, the ongoing contribution of ancient DNA studies. And a lot can be said about this, but I think the, the most important um, contribution since I wrote my book has been that we have a, a richer picture of just how widely the the plague bacterium was able to spread we i think you would really have to um disbelieve um all of the sources to deny that the impact of the justinian plague was utterly devastating in constantinople it happens to be the only place where we have detailed eyewitness accounts and really we're dependent above all on two eyewitness accounts who are very, very different people writing very, very different mm -hmm. kinds of histories, but who agree that the, the course of the plague in the Roman capital was utterly unlike anything anyone had ever experienced and was a absolute catastrophe uh, demographically. The problem is as good as these sources are, um, it's from our perspective, maybe a little bit bad luck that of the entire Roman and post-Roman world, 95%, I could, you could quantify this, percent of our written evidence for the first outbreak is focused on one city. Hmm. So that leaves a lot of uncertainties and a lot of gaps. Um, and we're still trying to piece together how and when and exactly where it spread. But to go back to the ancient DNA evidence, what's happened is with the ability to sequence the DNA of pathogens and as it has happened, particularly the DNA of this bacterium, Yersinia pestis, we can start to fill in some of those complete gaps and look for the plague in places that the written record doesn't tell us about. And that's still very much an ongoing project. There's still a lot to be learned, but the the big um, conclusion, which has really first um, appeared in a in a paper um, that Marcel Keller and Maria Spiro um, were the lead authors on in 2019, that published um, sequenced Yersinia pestis DNA from a, a range of different sites from the the first pandemic. So not all from the the outbreak of the 540s. And the, the most startling 
insight that comes out of this is that the plague got everywhere. So they're finding plague DNA in places like Edicts Hill in Cambridgeshire, oh, wow. which is in the absolute middle of nowhere. It's a <laughs> tiny village, 150 mm -hmm. people. It's a, it's a hamlet. This is not, this is like it, on the spectrum, Constantinople's at one end and Edix Hill is at the other in terms of being central to networks and highly densely populated versus at the extreme end of most relevant post-Roman networks and, um, and tiny. And if the plague made it to places like that, um, then it heightens the probability that it made it to a lot of places, that it was able to propagate um, through the, the networks of the post-Roman world to reach even these kind of outer areas. So, and that's not an isolated finding. Um, and most of the, the DNA that's been recovered has come from um, relatively rural places. And I think that tells you that what our written evidence says is happening in Constantinople is probably happening in a lot of places. So there's still, we still need to fill in a lot of the gaps and there's a lot of ancient DNA evidence that's sort of working its way um, through the, the pipeline and will, will increasingly be published. Um, there's a lot of um, positive identification from beyond the, the sites that we knew about in 2019. So this will keep happening. And, um, you know, I wish I'd had that evidence at my disposal when I, when I wrote my book, but I mm. think it, um, you couldn't dream of um, stronger evidence that the, the first plague pandemic is really marks a, a tremendous rupture in, in human history. Um, I mean, I think not to put it too finely, but I think it's probably the most important event of the first millennium uh, oh, wow. in terms of its, its magnitude. And we'll keep, uh, we'll keep studying it. Um, I've been working on a, a new project with a colleague of mine who's an expert in Syriac to, to analyze the, the most important written source for the plague of Justinian is a Syriac uh, speaking church leader um, known as John of Ephesus. And um, his, his account is the, the longest, the most detailed, um, the most credible and compelling. And there's never been a, a close study of it, uh, which is pretty amazing that our number one witness um, has never received really, really detailed scrutiny. So that's, I think, an indication that we still have a lot to learn, um, that the, the ancient DNA evidence speaks loudly, but it can also motivate us to, to look afresh at some of this very traditional evidence. Um, and it's, it's an exciting time to, to be working in the, the history of pandemic disease and the history of infectious disease for a lot of these reasons. Well, that sounds like it. Do we have any sense of whether the plague made it beyond the Roman Empire? Have evidence from, say, Sicilian oh, yeah. and Persia, or who we do? Well, yeah. in fact, Procopius tells us that it that it reached um, oh, Sicilian and mm -hmm. Persia. The sources are not as as detailed, um, unfortunately, um, and I'm not an expert in in Persia, but um, we know that it, it hit Persia. We know that it was significant, but we don't know um, as much about it there as we do in the Roman Empire, unfortunately. But um, we absolutely believe that it that it reached Persia. And one of the interesting interesting things about that is that it actually seems supposedly reaches Persia um, a year after it reaches the Roman Empire, which implies hmm. that it didn't um, reach the Roman Empire over the 
the Silk Roads, right, the right. overland trading networks um, that ran straight through Persia. Um, so its trajectory is different than the, the Black Death, mm -hmm. um, whether it um, comes through the south, uh, whether it comes through the far north, which I am skeptical of, but isn't mm -hmm. impossible. Um, one of the interesting things is that it doesn't strike Persia first. Yeah, it begins in uh, Pelusium, right? Is that what Procopius says? Where they first see it there in Pelusium this or something? Is, this is what Procopius says, but I've uh, mm -hmm. the more I've studied John of Ephesus, um, uh, he's mm -hmm. he's better than Procopius. He's there. Um, he's in Egypt. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Procopius puts it at Pelusium, which I think is very credibly one of the, the first places where it really became visible um, to Roman observers, um, which is on the, the very far northeastern part of Egypt. Um, and closely connected to both the world of the Nile, but also the world of the Red Sea. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting observation by Procopius. But John of Ephesus says very clearly that it struck um, the what we would think of as the, the worlds on either side of the Red Sea, so modern mm. uh, Yemen, modern Ethiopia, um, before it came into Egypt and then reached um, Alexandria and spread from there throughout the Roman world. Huh. Yeah, fascinating. I, again, I mentioned how I blithely assumed we knew so much about the Antonine Plague. You know, I always had told my students that you know, yeah, yeah I was from Egypt. You know, came in through there. You know, maybe from the south. Who knows? Um, or that it had come from the Crimean Steppe somehow or other, as the Black Death did, without really thinking hard about you know how many implications there are and where disease comes from and how it evolves and propagates. Yeah, that's an important piece of the the puzzle. So to to move back in time and step back a bit from uh, this succession of pandemics. Uh, the 5th century, which of course witnessed the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, seems to have been free of both these pandemics and of any obviously catastrophic weather events. What are some of the subtler ways in which disease and climate may have contributed to the, the, the collapse of the Western Roman Empire? Big question, I know, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it plays the same level of, of role that it does in some mm. of these other episodes, like the third century and the sixth century. Um, and I think that's revealing in its own way mm -hmm. that it, um, it underscores that when we're talking about the, the interplay of complex systems, whether the environment or human societies, um, that, um, the, the dynamics of human societies don't require um, necessarily the the push of really strong exogenous shocks from plagues mm. or or environmental disturbance um, to to have major episodes of transformation or collapse and so um, I think to me the, the the fifth century seems not to have experienced really massive pandemics um, but it's it's worth still being open-minded because the the historical record of the fifth century is pretty patchy, um, mm. certainly relative. The fourth century is the, the most richly attested century in all of antiquity. Um, and it too seems to lack major, major pandemics. There are regional and interregional outbreaks, but nothing like the, the plague of Cyprian or the plague of Justinian. Mm. Um, fifth century climate, I, I'm keeping a more open mind to, um, I think actually we we still need to scrutinize what we what we see in the fifth century climate there may be there may be more of a, an effect um, than we than we necessarily thought particularly in the kind of um, 430s to 450s which which may be actually a little more unstable than we than we thought um, but but I would say you know there's not going to be um, 
um, a, a meaningful way necessarily to get from um, the the amount of rain in Italy in the 430s to the the deposition of Romulus Augustulus. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, that's okay. I, I think that actually <laughs> highlights the the importance of sort of keeping keeping in mind that the the environment doesn't always play the the leading mm -hmm. part. Um, yeah, and actually to segue from that, you know, as you noted several times in this interview, it's reductive to claim that any single factor causes you know these grand you know collapses or you know um, uh, uh, <clears throat> problems in Roman history. So, how, as a historian, do you try to, I guess, reconcile or even just discuss the independent but interdependent narratives of climatic and political history? Well, I think we we now know enough that. I can't personally imagine writing a, a big picture history or trying to really understand the, the long-term development or trajectory of ancient societies, particularly Roman society, without trying to, to figure out how to integrate natural and human factors. I mean, that just seems overwhelmingly evident to me that, that what drives history is the the interplay of these two? Sometimes one is more important than the other, but um, but it's always the the interplay of these different factors. And um, I think we are we're increasingly developing more sophisticated ways to think about um, the importance of a society's resilience, its ability to withstand um, external shocks, change, perturbation, and resilience is not a binary category. It's not a one zero. You you mm. don't either have resilience or you don't. Um, you can have a little resilience. You can have a lot of resilience. And that's really what matters because um, just to to contrast at a very high level, two of the episodes we've talked about, the, the Antonine Plague, I think, is a pretty good shock. I mean, it looks like a pretty nasty disease outbreak that kills some unusual portion of the population has ramifications for taxation, agricultural production, and ultimately the socio-political system. But the the system itself really doesn't lose its essential structure, function, identity. The Severan and late Severan Empire is still in many ways the, the Augustan Empire structurally. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say that the, the Roman system has enough resilience to, to withstand or absorb that shock without fundamentally losing its structure, function, or identity in essential ways. And I think that's a really important contrast with what happens in the third century, where the system itself um, isn't resilient to mm -hmm. the, the shock of these combined environmental and geopolitical challenges that in the course of a generation, the Augustan system loses in really profound ways its essential function, identity, and structure. And the new empire that's put together um, by people starting with Claudius II, um, Aurelian, and then really stabilizing in the Diocletianic and Constantinian period is a very different empire. Um, of course, we call it the Roman Empire. It has essentially the same territorial boundaries. Um, but it's a it's a very different empire with very different kinds of emperors, a different monetary system, a different fiscal system, ultimately a different god. 
Um, and I think that's a very classic example of what it means to be resilient in the sense of being able to come through uh, a challenge without really fundamentally changing the, the essence of a system versus um, not having resilience. So I think we need to think in those terms of the interplay of human and natural factors, and we need to recognize mm -hmm. that um, the the effects of climate and disease or other exogenous factors is always going to be sensitive to the the state of the system. Um, that's what I mean by by interplay. And I think we mm -hmm. now we now know um, such an exciting amount about climate history and about the history of pathogens. Um, that we're, we're able to tell the story, at least roughly in those terms. Hmm. You know, as you've mentioned uh, well, just now and a few times before, that the sheer flood of new research is almost overwhelming in climate science. And so in the six years, I think it is, since you published The Fate of Rome, I know there's been all kinds of new discoveries and uh, new interpretations of what we do have. Um, and how, or what are some of the ways rather, that this flood of new research has led you to um, reconsider some of the points you made in The Fate of Rome? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an exciting um, and sometimes humbling time <laughs> to um, to work on this this sort of edge of the the discipline. And um, maybe you know, I don't know if I'll I'll come back and try and resynthesize what what we've learned or not. But I think almost on every front, there are things that that confirm or challenge um, the way that it seems now, whatever that six, seven years ago. And I think the Roman climate optimum starts to unwind a little earlier than I thought. Um, I still don't think that the the climate shocks of the, the years leading up to the Antonine Plague really help explain. I think it's a more long-term degradation of the environmental conditions of previous centuries. I think the climate shock of the third century still still a little bit mysterious to us, but looks bigger. Um, the the sixth century, the now increasingly known as the late antique Little Ice Age, mm -hmm. um, just looks stronger and stronger. Um, the, the plague of Justinian, um, the, the evidence for it just continues to build that it was a, a hugely um, consequential uh, outbreak of infectious disease. So uh, it's a fun time. Um, you know, like, like you were saying, I think we all have been a little bit chastened on remembering that we shouldn't say the Antonine Plague was caused by smallpox. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't know what it is. Same with Plague of Cyprian, um, both because of what's um, what we've learned and sort of my own continuing research on infectious disease. I think we, we really have no idea um, in the present state of knowledge of what caused it. So that's frustrating, but it's also a challenge to us to try and go out and find it. There are a lot of dead bodies uh, in the Roman Empire, and um, I think eventually we, we can at least hope um, for for resolution of that that mystery. Huh. Oh, that, that, it is fascinating. I look forward to reading more of this research as it comes out. Um, and so, can you tell us a bit as we close here about your newest project, uh, your newest book project? I mean, yeah. Um, the you mean the the one that just came out, the infectious diseases or the- Well, I, I guess I was thinking of the, the one that you're working on now, but even that that project as well, yeah. this uh, history of diseases. Well, and, um, mm -hmm. I, I wrote a global history of infectious diseases um, that I started because of my interest in these Roman pandemics, but wanted to try and contextualize in global history. Mm -hmm. Then COVID happened, which <laughs> certainly right. um, affected, affected the story. Um, but 
part of, again, I think usually one book leads to the next. One of the things that got me really interested or that I got really interested in while working on the global history of diseases is how important the human animal relationship is for our health, for planetary health, for environmental health. And so I wanted to write a history of um, the ways that human societies have shaped biodiversity and particularly in animals. Um, the way that we're intimately dependent on our relationship with with um, certain species of animals, particularly domesticated animals, but the the way that that then affects everything else, the distribution and abundance of other animals. And um, you may have heard of the the term the sixth extinction, which is mm -hmm. a kind of name that's given to the hypothesis that we're driving a biodiversity crisis. Um, and one of the things I wanted to explore is what are the historical dimensions of that? So um, it's sort of the, the animal equivalent of the book that I wrote on the global history of humans and microbes. Um, but it thinks about how human societies shape the, the fate um, of the rest of the animal world and how um, the fate of the, the rest of the animal world is really intertwined with our own destiny. So it's kind of a, a history of the sixth extinction, mm -hmm. uh, still very much taking shape though. Oh yes. Well, I would look forward to seeing it when it does come out. Someday. Uh, someday, right. Well, uh, Dr. Harper, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And uh, I've learned a lot from this interview. I'm sure my subscribers will also uh, be fascinated by this stuff we've gone over. I'd encourage thank anyone. You. Oh no, no, it's my pleasure. Um, anyone intrigued by the intersections of environment and history, check out uh, both The Fate of Rome and uh, Plagues Upon the Earth, which is Dr. Harper's history of disease on a global scale. Um, so again, thanks so much, Dr. Harper. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. And everyone, uh, thanks so much for listening.